0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Book, and is number 30 of the series The Form of Sound Words. The word word that we are considering today is the word perfect, and there are two outstanding words in the New Testament that are thus translated. You will see by the chart, the one is the word telios, and the other is katartizo. Now, just for a moment with regard to the composition of these two words and their distinctive difference. T-E-L-O-S is the word end. Then cometh the end. And the word telios doesn't mean that you're getting better and better and better because you're getting perfect. The The real thought of the word is you are going on till you get to the end of the course. Like the Apostle said, I have finished my course. And the word finished is the verbal form of the word perfect. He said in Acts 20, all oh, that I may finish my course with joy. And he had the answer in 2 Timothy 4. And the word is associated in 2 Timothy 4 with a race course. The word course is a place where horses run in the original. Dromos, like the word "hippodrome," horse race. So, the word means that you touch the tape at the end, and you find that, that is the word which our Saviour used in a verbal form on the cross. The word "tenny," which is in such common use with us, has this original meaning, and he, he used the very word, the verbal form of the word "tenny" on the cross when he said it is finished it is finished the work that I had given to be do to do. I have done, and nothing has stopped me. So the word perfect has a little bit more in it than merely just getting better. Well, you want to get better every day, but that's not the real meaning. Then the other word, catartizo, um, I've got a great interest in this word, the A-R-T, articulation. I can do it with my arm, but not with my hip for now, you see. Catartizo, arthritis, A-R-T. You see the word? Well, that means... Uh, 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 some sort of complete harmony of parts. So that word is translated perfect and we want to see the two so that we don't lose their meaning or mix them together. But first of all, let's take a little survey through the scriptures quickly of the use of this word in many other ways but that. When we come to the time of the flood in the book of Genesis when all flesh and corrupted its way upon the earth. The whole of mankind was blotted out by a flood, except one man and his family. Now it says of that one man, these words, These are the generations of Noah. I'm reading Genesis 6 verse 9. Noah was a just man, and perfect in his generations. He was not only just, but he was perfect. It might surprise you when you read further on in the book of Genesis that Esau was a hairy man and a monstrous sort of man, a peculiar something about him, but Jacob was a plain man. Now, why the authorized version altered the word perfect to plain, I don't know, but it's exactly the same word. Jacob was a perfect man. Would you say he was a bit of a deceiver and, oh yes, it doesn't, nothing to do with that. He was the true seed. Noah was the true seed. It was nearly blotted out in the time of the flood, but one man brought it through the ark and started on the purpose of God afterwards. And then it was corrupted again, you remember. It's been going on all the time. For the evil one sows his seed in the field to mix up and muddle up the purpose of God and they grow together unto the harvest. And so we have this emphasis on that which is perfect. Again, the word is used in the Levitical law, with regard to the animals that have to be used in sacrifice. I'm reading from Leviticus 22, verse 21, And whosoever offereth a sacrifice of peace offerings unto the Lord to accomplish his vow, or a freewill offering in bees or sheep, it shall be perfect to be accepted. It shall be perfect. Then he goes on to say what perfection was here. There shall be no blemish therein, blind or broken or maimed or having a wen or scurvy or scabbed. Ye shall not offer these unto the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them upon the altar unto the Lord. It shall be perfect. According to the Lord Moses, when the day of Passover comes, the lamb that is to be offered on the 14th day of the month has to be brought on the 10th day of the month. So there's time enough for the priest to examine this animal and see whether it has got a blemish. It shall be perfect. And our Saviour was taken before Annas the high priest, before Caiaphas the high priest, before Pilate, and they all pronounced him, they didn't say the word perfect. But one said, I find no fault with this just man. Herod sent him back, said, I find no worthy of death in this man. Pilate's wife said, don't you have anything to do with that just man? And the dying thief said, we are being treated according to our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. They all examined the Lamb of God before he was offered. And his very enemies pronounced that he was perfect. He was complete. So there's some of the ways in which this word is used. And then we come to the New Testament and we have that statement in our Saviour's Prayer in John 17. He says, I pray that they, in verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in one. Perfected in one. Made perfect in one. So the idea of perfect, you see, has got wider significance than just what seems on the surface. This is... (coughs) a marvellous, a complete unity beyond our conception and our Saviour doesn't hesitate to say as thou, Father, art in me so one day his redeemed people will be one well if that's not perfection, what is? and so we could go on if you come to the passage we had just now in 1 Corinthians 13 it's in contrast with that which is in part When that which is in part, when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part should be done away. So there's another reference to this in Corinthians that will take us along our journey in understanding it. If you turn to to the first chapter, or the second chapter rather, of 1 Corinthians, you'll find that he says he made a distinction between some of those to whom he spoke. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll read the first few verses. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of God in man, but in the power of God. But he says, don't misunderstand me. How be it? We speak wisdom among them that are perfect. Now, what's his idea? Well, if you'll turn the page, he picks this up again in chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Babes. The contrast between the babes and those with whom Paul could speak is the perfect. Now, you may not think that when a person grows up, they are, as compared with a baby, perfect. But it depends upon what you mean by that, of course. And if you'll come to the epistle to the Hebrews, you'll find the same argument is there that we had set out in part in 1 Corinthians. Will you come to Hebrews chapter 5? Hebrews chapter 5. He's speaking in this Hebrews chapter 5 of the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And he admits that there are some things, verse 11, of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered. But he didn't say they were hard to be uttered because he didn't know what to tell them. But he says, because you can't hear them. You do understand, don't you friends, that it takes two people to speak. I don't mean both of them speaking. One to speak and one to hear. Because if this chapel were quite empty and I stood here saying this, I'm not speaking, I'm making a noise, It's, it's registering nowhere. So he said, you see, you must have your ears attuned to the message. Otherwise it'll pass. There are some folks still I've seen the I've seen the Sunday school teacher go and give a little exercise to his children. They always before they started the Sunday school lesson put one finger in one ear. I said, What'd you do that for? He said, Well we all remind ourselves that it might go in one ear and out the other. You see? So he says, No, you're all done of hearing. And this same word according to the structure, the structure's so marvellous, it says in verse twelve of chapter six Be ye not slothful. That's the same word, dull. Slothful. Dull. So he said, because of that, I can't tell you what I want to tell you about the priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'm back again in chapter 5, verse 12. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you see the idea, don't you, that you shouldn't always be babes. You'll meet one of these pious I don't use the word pious in a wrong sense, it's a true word, but there's a mock piety. Oh, he says, oh, I'm but a babe. And he's been a Christian for years and years and years. Well, that's nothing to boast about. He says, for the time, you ought to be teaching somebody else. You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles, the very elements, the ABC of the oracles of God. And now he's back on his figure as a baby and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. You see, the same apostle wrote Hebrews as wrote Corinthians. A good many people don't believe that, but here's all sorts of evidence. He uses the same figures here, about the babe and the perfect, just the same. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful, never been tested out in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But strong meat then obviously to them that are a full age, now that's the margin tells you, perfect. Full age, they've grown up. And I believe that if you lived in ancient Greece I don't know whether it's true today, but if you lived in ancient Greece, you might be invited to a party that was being arranged because the son of the family had come to the end of his life. Well, you say, that's a funny idea to have a party because he's dead. Who said he was dead? He's reached 21. It's the end of his life, not cutting the life off. The end. So here he says, you're not babies. You've grown up, that's the end of your life, to grow up, friends. The object that you have in front of you. So telos doesn't mean to cut a thing off at the end, it's to reach an end. But strong meat belongs to them that are a full age or perfect, even those who by reason of use have their senses. Now, babies have their senses, but they haven't got them exercised. See, I've, I've seen a baby grabbing its big toe and yelling like anything because it hasn't learned yet to distinguish between me and somebody else. Senses, but not exercise. But if they're exercised, they have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And I cannot resist the temptation to say, and when you read through this this um uh, epistle, and come to chapter 12, you may clean forget that you've got a perfect balance in it and it speaks about those um, who go through discipline in chapter 12. But he says in verse 11, "No, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are, what? exercised thereby. Oh, he hasn't forgotten it. We may have done, he hadn't. And so, one of the marks of growing up is that you're exercised by the truth. You don't merely say it, but you're exercised by it. It's beginning to have an effect upon you. Now, we get the principle working out in Hebrews 3 immediately says in the next chapter, therefore, this is the condition of things, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Well now, you lift that out, and put that on a board outside your chapel they say, what a monstrous idea. They're telling people to leave the very principles of the doctrine of Christ. Some people might think that's true of some churches, I don't know. But don't you see, he's told you that the principles are the ABC. He says, you're still there where you ought to be been left it long ago. So he says, therefore, leaving the word of the beginning of Christ, oh, it's right for us to read the Gospels, But when I meet a Christian who lives in the Gospels, I know he hasn't got very far. Because you can go right through the Gospel according to Matthew, with the Sermon on the Mount, and the Lord's Prayer, and all the parables, and you come to a point where you discover that 16 chapters on, Peter did not know that our Lord was to be crucified. Don't you see? That's the word of the beginning. But the epistles come along and say, we start where the Gospels end. The Gospel tells you he was crucified, but doesn't tell you why. The Epistle says, now I'll tell you why, the doctrine of the cross. So, don't be a baby and live on milk all the time. Move on. So, he says, that's what we're going to do. Therefore, leaving the word of the beginning of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Go on to the end. Contrast with the word beginning, which is there. Go on to the end. You don't know the truth. If you only know Bethlehem, you don't know the truth if you stay at the cross. You don't know the truth even if you're in resurrection with Mary. You don't know the truth until he's ascended and seated at the right hand and then he's got to come again and all things under his feet and lay a perfect universe at the foot of the Father that God may be all in all. That's when the word finish will be written. So you see how much there is to put onto the initial fact of the coming of Christ at the beginning before you say that you know. Now, in contrast with going on unto perfection, you'll see on this chart I put the, the balance, at the end of chapter 10 we have the alternative. He speaks about those who suffered for truth's sake, and I'll pick it up in verse 36, or verse 35, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Then presently, verse 38 Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them which draw back unto perdition, but unto them which believe. To the acquisition, not saving, this is taking up your cross and finding your soul in that day. This is not the evangelical word, saving at all. Don't you see now we've got the two points in the epistle to the Hebrews? You either go on to perfection, the full end, or you'll draw back to perdition, the two. Now those two words, perfection and perdition, come in Philippians 3, but they're not so translated. So should we come back to Philippians 3? And by comparing the two passages, we may get a better idea of their meaning in both epistles. You notice I just read the word reward, in the passage in Hebrews 10. Well, now, if I look at Philippians 3, it says in verse um, 14, I press toward the mark for the prize. The reward in one epistle is said to be a prize in the other. And I'll go back now without turning to the passage. You will know it's there. In the 12th chapter of Hebrews, it says, um, Therefore, being compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher, or perfecter, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured a cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand. Don't you see? The perfecter of faith went right through cross, right to the throne, and he's exhorting them to have to run with patience, the race set before them. Well, here, the apostle in Philippians 3, he says, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection. Verse 11, if by any means I might attain unto the out resurrection, out from among the dead, the out is there, and Hebrews balances this by a better resurrection in Hebrews 11, better than some. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. You see? Now, Paul isn't speaking about his standing in Christ or his salvation, but he says, I've started to run this race. But you can't say you're sure of winning until you get in touch the post at the end. There's no prize or there's no running a race if before you start, everybody knows perfectly well that this particular one is going to win. If there's no element of chance about it, whatever, well, you might as well just not run, you stop at home, see? So he says, Lord, oh, no, I don't think I, I've attained yet. But he says, I tell you what I do. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press according to a mark, that's the white mark down the middle of the road, which we still copy from the ancient Greeks and Romans. I press according to a mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now where's this word perdition coming in? You see the word perfect, I'm not yet perfect. Verse 15, let us therefore as many as would be perfect, as it should be translated, be thus minded. If you would like to follow on in this train, now look further. 17, brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as you ask for an example. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Now the word destruction is the word perdition. Hebrews says we go on to perfection or we'll draw back to perdition. Philippians says we go on to perfection or we might be like those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ and draw back to destruction. And the rather blunt statement, whose God is their belly, refers you to Esau in Hebrews, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. All they hang together, these epistles, they've got a message, let them speak. So you see, is it growing in your mind, this idea of perfection, is not merely just a static sort of getting better, but it's a a running, it's a race, it's something in front of you, something you may attain unto. And that's one of the key thoughts of these epistles that the Apostle has written. Well now, you will find there are consequences in connection with this. Uh, In in, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, lifting out of its context, we have rather a strange exhortation. 2 Corinthians, chapter 7. Having, therefore, these promises, dear beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, you lift out the words from the New Testament, perfecting holiness, and it sounds impossible, doesn't it? Doesn't Shakespeare speak about Painting the lily and gilding the rose. Well, this is, this sounds like it. Fancy trying to perfect holiness. Surely holiness cannot be perfected. Well, as Professor Joe used to say, it all depends on what you mean by perfect. (coughs) So when you look back into this chapter (coughs) 6, he says, verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship? hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? You see how he's touching the one various possible uh, things of a world spoil. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now then, having seen that, he says, having therefore, these promises, which we just read, what are you going to do about it? He says, Perfecting holiness means this, taking holiness to its logical conclusion. Not making it better, you can't make holiness better. But if you have been separated by God by redemptive love, and you're carrying on mixing up darkness and light and good and evil, you're not taking holiness to its logical conclusion. You now, because you have been cleansed, seek to keep yourself clean. You that have been separated by mercy now seek to walk in that separated path. So you're only taking it to its logical conclusion. That's the real idea in this word perfecting here, not improving by any sort of means. Now I want to turn to a passage where two different words come in the same context and could be easily linked together by the reader who doesn't read the original. Ephesians chapter (coughs) 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Here in chapter 4, the epistle leaves the revelation of the truth of the mystery and the doctrine and says, now what are you going to do about it? Just the same as he gave them those promises and says, now are you going to take it up and carry it forward in perfecting? So he says in chapter 4 in Ephesians, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, changing the title. Chapter 3 says, I the prisoner of Jesus Christ, same person, different title. When he's dealing with doctrine, he's the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and when he's dealing with practice, he's the prisoner of the Lord. The word Lord comes many times in 4, 5, and 6, but as far as my memory goes, only once in 1, 2, and 3. Same person, different type. The Lord means he's dealing with you as a servant. He's the master. And so he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy, and the word worthy is a word that can indicate the beam of a balance. You put all the glorious doctrine of Ephesians 1, 2 and 3 in one scale and you put your walk in the other. Oh, you say, what a hope. Well, anyhow, it's better to put it in and have a hope of some sort than never to do it at all. So he says, walk worthy of this calling, wherewith ye are called. Well, now I haven't time to read all this passage, but it's a wonderful one. But now he takes us to where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Verse 10, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. What were they given for? For the perfecting of the saints. Now that word perfecting might make you think that he's referring to the same thing in verse 23. Till we all come into unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. But they're not the same word at all. They are these two words that you see on the chart. The the perfecting of the saints is this word, katartizo, And the perfect man is the word telios. two different words. Now, what does he mean when he says the perfecting of the saints? Well, now, if you were at the meeting this morning, we spent nearly all the morning trying to show that the words of the saints are used over and over again, especially in the epistles of Hebrews, and translated the holiest of all, the holy place, the sanctuary, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. In English, we don't call a place a saint, but in the Greek, they do. A holy place is the same word as a saint. Might be in the plural, but there it is. So now he says, um, the perfecting or readjusting of the saints, as though there'd been a dislocation. This word is found in the medical writings of ancient Greece, for the resetting of a fracture or a uh, a broken joint. And it occurs in Galatians 6.1, when it says, Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one. Not perfect him, but restore him. Put him back in his place. So, This ministry of the ascended Christ that was given after he ascended was to readjust some sort of rupture that had taken place with regard to the heavens. And it's because there had been now a revelation given, putting in a company of believers who were far off, made nigh and given a place in heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God, that had to be readjusted in order to make it possible for them to be thus addressed. And now he says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man. Now that particular word man is not the one that means men, women and children. There is the ordinary word for man that covers all humanity. But this word is translated about four or five times in the next chapter by the word husband. Now, don't run away with the idea that all husbands are perfect, because I didn't go any further, did I? But the point is that in this case, this perfect man to which this church is being uh, uh, directed is a husband. Now, if you believe that all the members of the church are the bride of the Lamb, Well, Paul's made a mistake here, hasn't he? Because he says the bride is going to be the perfect husband. But inasmuch as we believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, we know that one calling in the book of the Revelation, the bride of the Lamb, is one thing, and the church which is the body of Christ, blessed with all spiritual blessings, far above even the heavenly Jerusalem, is another thing. So when the glorious day comes and paradise is restored, There will not only be a perfect bride, friends, God won't forget Adam. There'll be a perfect husband too. Oh, God hasn't forgotten it. The church has. There's any amount of God's people who are rejoicing because they're the bride of the man. Well, one of these days they may wake up and find they're not. They find they're a part of the husband instead. But God won't make any mistakes. It'll all be readjusted in that day. But how nice it is to see the the word of God perfectly fitting in every occasion. Well, now we've done a very rapid survey of this extraordinary word. I hope there's nothing specific that I've left out. Let's have a look at the chart and see. The word perfect telios comes from the word end which is telos and we get the words in our own language. Telescope means you see at a distance. Telegram means you write at a distance. Telephone means you hear at a distance and television you sit and look at something which is going on at a distance. So you know the word already in your own tongue. It doesn't mean something that's perfect, for neither telephones, telescopes, telegrams or television are perfect, but it means something that brings the end near to you. So the word, incipient word of the word perfect, the meaning is, you go right out to the end. Like the Apostle said, that I may finish my course, and he did. That Christ came to do a work. He says, my meat and my drink is to do the work of him that sent me and to finish that work. And he said, it is finished. That's telios And then the other word is the word katotizo, which means to... Um, I know I never gave you the passage, but there it's waiting for us. Matthew. Shall we look at this one for the last, uh, before we say we've come to a conclusion, because it's a rather interesting use of the word. Matthew, the fourth chapter. Our Saviour has called some, it says in verse 18, and Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. If you were to sometimes come to our little Sunday school downstairs, you might find that we have added to the chorus. Now, there's one chorus which mostly you know, I will make you fishers of men, you know that one. Well, now I said, let's give them the other one. I will make you menders of nets. You say, why that? You try fishing and never mend your nets, you never catch anything. Our Lord knew what he was doing. So the next couple, it says, verse 21, and going on from thence, he saw other brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother in a ship, with Zebedee their father, mending their nets and he called them. You see, some people think the evangelist is the only thing that matters. But if there were no teachers, there'd ultimately be no gospel preachers. They are both necessary. One has to do the mending of the nets and one goes out and does the fishing and neither one can say to the other, I have no need of thee. How perfect the Word of God. How good it is to let it speak for itself. How good it is to have a form of sound words which we've heard from the Apostle who was said to us. And these this series, we're still in it, we've got some more to look at, is just a desire to stimulate an interest and to search and see if these things are so. And when you've got them, hold fast to them and speak in harmony with them. And then you may ask God's blessing Upon their, well, the witness and their delivery.